innovative, often duplicated. When enough people get on the trend, I elevate it. Make it way harder for them to follow what I take. It hard to swallow like a lozenger lodged in your trachea. Goodness gracious, bruh, I can never make this up. So just take your stuff, rake it up, and take the bus. Never fake the funk, you painted skunks. You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space, so the weight is up. Fight. WHUPLP Hillsboro, North Carolina, the center of the known world. This is the Cage Side Concussion Cast, your source for the martial arts in the Carolinas and beyond. I am Jeff Shaw, and I am on the road for the next couple of weeks, so we're pre-recording the show, but not so early as I can't tell you about the Concussion Cast Carnival, which happened uh, May 1st in Durham Central Park. I want to thank everybody who came out and attended. We had probably 350 people there and about 1,600 people watching on the live stream, so thanks to everyone who showed up and supported the event. It was really amazing. It uh, went about as well as, as it possibly could have. The matches were incredible. The food was great. Um, a bunch of people from about 16 to 20 different schools came out and really enjoyed the day, so I want to thank everybody who showed up. Our guest this week, and we're going to get right into the interview, is Hoist Gracie Black Belt Jake Whitfield. Now, Jake's one of the people I've learned the most from about jiu-jitsu, and he's has a deep wealth of knowledge about not just jiu-jitsu technique, but jiu-jitsu history, and if you know Jake, you know he has strong opinions. They're also well-thought-out opinions. And so um, I had a long, productive interview with Jake that I want to share with you, and we are going to get right to it. Um, you can get at us and let us know what you think of the interview at uh, facebook.com slash cagesideradio. We are at cagesidewhup on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks to all of you uh, for your support for the carnival. Uh, North Carolina Jiu-Jitsu, North Carolina MMA is on the come up, and we might have some exciting announcements soon. Without further ado, Here's my interview with Jake Whitfield. So why don't we start by you telling folks how you got started training jiu-jitsu. I was eight years old, up way past my bedtime, and I went and, uh, and watched the first UFC live on pay-per-view. I saw that, you know, saw, saw some skinny Brazilian guy that, that went in there and did some stuff that I didn't know and choked everybody out. Um, so I, I was doing karate at the time, but I was aware of jujitsu. Um, I didn't know what it was or how to learn it or anything like that, but, but that was, that was in my head right then. And, um, so I did karate from six until I was 16. Uh, and, uh, and I was, but I was always thinking about. I was always a fan of MMA before it was MMA when it was in HB, um, and I was always watching it and and everything. And then I had some friends that were training karate with me, and they were also interested, and they were around my same age. And so we kind of had like a little fight club on the weekends, and we would get together on Sunday afternoons in my friend Eric's upstairs, like. Um, I don't know the I don't know the, the the word for it, but he had a room upstairs in his house that was kind of just like a basically empty, and so me and uh, me and him and another one of my friends would get together every Sunday, and we would train and we would just kind of try to copy the stuff that we had seen on TV, and uh, eventually we bought an old Carlson Gracie Jr. VHS set. And we started trying to learn along with that. Um, then in middle school, I started wrestling. I wrestled in middle school and high school. And, uh, and all of that was basically because I didn't know anywhere to actually learn this stuff that I was seeing on TV. So I was just copying what I saw. And then I saw a flyer for a local grappling competition in Durham. Uh, I was 16, so I'd been wrestling, and I'd been training with the tapes and everything, and I tapped out everybody at my high school, everybody on my wrestling team, everybody at the karate dojo, tapped everybody out, so I thought, man, I'm going to go to this grappling competition, and I'm going to just, like, wreck everyone. And, uh, I mean, it was a tiny little 
little event is absolutely nothing like anything we have now, you know, as far as U.S. grappling or anything like that. There was probably like 20 people competing, if that. Um, but I did I did pretty well. I won a couple matches, and, uh, and it was so small that they, they there was no skill divisions. Like, I signed up to compete in whatever division it was, but everybody ended up together. And, uh, and I ended up in the finals, and I got triangled by a guy from Team Rock. Um, and, of course, I automatically assumed that the guy from Team Rock that had beat me must be, like, awesome. And it uh, turned out he was a white belt. And so, um, but after that, after that tournament, like I said, I won a couple matches, made it to the finals, and I got triangled. And uh, Spencer from Team Rock approached me and was like, hey, man, where do you train? And I said, well, I just, you know, I wrestle and I train with my friends. And he's like, look, you need to come train with us. And, uh, and he told me about Team Rock. And it was about 30-ish minutes from my house, but I was totally down to do that because to, to find out that there was a real jiu-jitsu school that was actually affiliated with Hoist Gracie anywhere nearby um, was just, like, mind-blowing to me. So I went to Team Rock and, of course, thought, like, because, I, like I said, I didn't realize that, that Jesse, the guy that triangled me, I didn't realize he was a white belt. I thought he was, like, super awesome. So um, so I went to Team Rock and uh, just got, I mean, just got, like, choked and just smashed by absolutely everyone my first night there. And after that, I was hooked. I was like, this is exactly where, where I need to be. And so that's how I got started with jiu-jitsu. And what year was that when you finally started training at Team Rock? Uh, that was the beginning of 2002. And so eventually, after training at Team Rock for a while, you split off to form Triangle Jiu-Jitsu. And, uh, and can you tell us a little bit about um, what starting your own school was like? Um, yeah, well, the, uh, the, the thing is, is that uh, I was with I was with Team Rock for five years, and uh, I was a three stripe purple belt when I left Team Rock, and uh, and I had been running the Chapel Hill School since I was a purple belt, um, and then uh, and then leaving Team Rock was was never like my initial my initial goal. Um, me and Greg Thompson who, you know, was the founder of Team Rock, was the head of Team Rock. We had an issue that was a, it was a business issue and um, it was probably not handled the best way all the way around. Um, and so I ended up leaving and starting Triangle Jiu-Jitsu. And, uh, and it, was, it was very interesting because um, I wasn't starting from scratch because I knew that there was going to be some people that um, that were going to leave Team Rock and come with me because there was there was a lot of people that were training there that had never met Greg, never met Spencer, and I was their only instructor. And um, so I knew that some of them were going to come with me, um, but I tried to make it a situation where like it was very open. It was very like you can you can stay with Team Rock or you can come with me, and either way you want to do it. Um, and there's no hard feelings. And there's still like there's still a bunch of guys over at Chapel Hill Gracie Jiu Jitsu that started out as my student, and for whatever reason they decided to stay with Team Rock. And, and we're you know there's no issue whatsoever today. We're all really cool. Um, but but starting out on my own was um, it, it was definitely difficult because there was a lot of stuff up in the air. I had communicated with Hoist. Hoist and I had talked several times during that period. And he was aware of everything that was going on. But Greg was Hoist's first black belt. So obviously Greg had a lot of seniority over me. And so I didn't know exactly what was going to go on there. But, um, but so that was actually my, my main concern is I've never, uh, I never wanted to be affiliated with anyone else other than Hoist. I had, you know, several people offer me and several suggestions and everything, but I never wanted to be affiliated with anything but anybody but Hoist. And, um, and so that was, the, that was the big thing, is leaving, leaving Team Rock and, and, uh, and starting Triangle Jiu-Jitsu, but still trying to 
still trying to stay loyal to Hoist and still trying to to uh, represent you know what I believed in, but 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 doing it on my own. And so a lot of people, I'm glad that you you talked about that because you know whenever I, I talk to folks about North Carolina Jiu-Jitsu affiliations, everybody sort of assumes. Uh, or everybody knows that Team Rock is under hoist and that Triangle Jiu-Jitsu is under hoist, and so a lot of folks I think don't, don't think know about the um, the sort of origin of that. Um, right. At which point in here did you start fighting MMA? A lot of people know you from your career uh, as a professional MMA fighter. Um, I started MMA when I was. I fought um, my first amateur fight was when I was eighteen. Um, so I, I was eighteen and maybe like. I don't remember it, like three or four months, maybe. I like I was I was I had just turned eighteen at that point, and um, and so like for me, what's what's interesting for me is that from from when I was eight years old, I watched the UFC on TV. Everything else that I had done up until when I finally got to fight MMA, I considered like practice for MMA. So when I went to a karate tournament, I was competing in karate, but I was thinking about MMA. When I was wrestling, I was I was I was wrestling so that someday I would be more prepared to fight MMA. Um, when I was competing in jujitsu tournaments, because I mean I started I mean after uh, uh, I did that one I did the one grappling tournament. And, uh, and then I, I didn't compete again until I got my blue belt. I was only a white belt for six months. And, um, and then like starting immediately after I got my blue belt and I was healthy, I, um, I, com- I just started competing in, in grappling tournaments, competing in, in all the local tournaments, competing in Naga, competing in Grappler's Quest all over the place. Um, the year that I graduated high school, I think I did like 17 tournaments or something like that. And, um, and then right at the end of that term, at the end of that year was when I had my first MMA fight. Um, and so everything that I had done up until that point was, was all just practice for MMA. And then when I finally got an MMA fight and I was 18, it was like the most, it was like, it was almost like a relief. It was like, okay, cool. Now I got all this stuff that I've been working on, I've been doing, and now I get to put it all together in one place. So you had always sort of had MMA in your mind, and once you started fighting, you know how quickly after you you took your first fight did you turn pro? Uh, I was I had six amateur fights. I was six and zero as an amateur. Um, at that time, amateur was was um, was very different than it was now. Better than it is now. Um, all six of my amateur fights were with full. Were, were the same rules as pro. They were all five minute rounds. Uh, all my amateur fights had elbows and knees to the head, um, no shin pads. No, I mean it was it was there was no distinction between amateur and pro when I started, except for pros got paid and amateurs did. And um, and so I had six amateur fights. I was six and zero as an amateur, and I was amateur for. Just a, a little, maybe two and a half years, a little bit over two years, something like that. And then my first pro fight was in December of 2005. And so, you know, it, it's astonishing to me with, with your MMA record, and I'm not trying to blow smoke, but it's astonishing to me that I still think you're underrated in that I, I don't think a lot of people understand that you're one of the most successful MMA fighters that North Carolina has produced. And so uh, you're... And, and so, what what is your professional record? I'm six and one as a pro. I'll be seven and one soon. Um, and, uh, but yeah, and so and so, I always you know if, if I always differentiate as you know I'm six and one as a pro, six and zero as an amateur. But to me, I feel like all my amateur fights were under pro rules, so I think that it should all be one record. And and you know, and we're bringing this up. Partially because you have another pro fight coming up soon in the next few weeks after this airs, and so maybe you could tell folks a little bit about that. Yeah, um, I'm going to be fighting uh, May 21st in Raleigh at the um, 
at the Civic Center downtown Raleigh for Next Level Fight Club. Um, it's going to be my first fight in several years, and it's going to be my first fight working with Next Level. Um, so I'm, I'm really uh, I'm really interested to see what's going to happen because I, I, I felt I, I felt great in training. Um, no injuries, no um, no problems in training whatsoever. Uh, I feel really good. But you never know. I mean, when you get in the when you actually get in the cage, it's it's always different, you know. So I, I'm for for all I know, I'm going to get in the cage, and I'm going to get in there, and the and the cage door is going to shut, and I'm going to crawl right back out over the top. Um, I don't think that's what's going to happen, but it, it's theoretically possible. Or I could get in there, and I could feel like, man, this is what I've been missing. This is you know, it could be it could be you know, just like coming home. Um, but I won't know until I get in there. Um, but, the I've had, I've had several, um, I've had a lot of people that, uh, turned down and I've had several people that initially said yes and then changed their mind. Um, and I, I don't, you know, I don't know why, I don't know if, I don't know if they got injured or if they got, you know, I, I don't know. And I, I hate to pass judgment, you know, but, um. But I'm very excited that you know they have an opponent for me that actually, you know, has agreed to the fight. We have a contract, and so everything's everything's supposed to be going ahead now. Um, the guy, I don't, I don't really, you know, I know, I know a little bit about the guy. His name is is uh, Portland Pringle, um, which you know, it's <laughs> try to make him, try not to make any Paul Bearer, Percy <laughs> Pringle jokes, but. Um, the guy's name is is uh, is Portland Pringle, and I know he's a very experienced fighter. If you combine his pro and amateur records, he's got like thirty fights or something like that. Um, I've watched his uh, I've watched his fights. He looks like he's a uh, he look, looks looks extremely athletic. Looks very strong, um, you know. And and I've always I've always liked fighting those super athletic strong guys because I'm not terribly athletic, and and I think that that's the that's the those guys. Um, are the best showcase for jujitsu. You know, when you see somebody that uh, looks like I do, and uh, and you see me be able to execute jujitsu against um, people that are maybe even unnaturally well built, I think that's a great showcase for jujitsu. Mm-hmm. Who would you say your toughest fight has been against? Uh, um, that's a, it's a tricky question, you know, cause, cause I lost my, my first pro fight I lost. Um, but up until that point, it wasn't a terribly tough fight. Um, I was dominating the fight pretty well and I got overexcited and I got on barred. Um, so you have to give, um, the, the his name is Vadim Ivanov. He's a Russian Sambo champion. Um, and so I have to give him credit because he um, he got hit and elbowed and mounted and smashed a lot, and and he and he made me tap. So I have to give him credit. But up until the point that I got armbarred, it wasn't a particularly um, difficult fight. Um, I would say that Tim Mannon was the most dangerous opponent that I fought. Tim is an absolute. I mean, he is just—he is strong. He is explosive. He's a Henzo Gracie black belt. Hits super hard. Um, and I would say that that he was the most dangerous person I fought. Um, the just flat out toughest person I fought was Roger Carroll. I feel like Roger is the only person that I've ever fought that I never broke mentally. I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I feel like I dominated Roger pretty thoroughly for the entire fight. And when the fight was over, he still felt like I can win despite all, you know, evidence to the contrary. Um, so Roger was flat out toughest opponent and he just never stopped coming. Um, I fought Brian Keller in the RBC center and, uh, we went, we went five, five minute rounds and so I got that. That's it. And I got to have that experience. You know, I don't think a lot of people have actually fought 25 minutes in a cage and I got to have that experience. So that was, um, that, that was something really cool, but it's hard to, it's hard to pin down just and say, Oh man, this one fight, you know, Tim, Tim was a monster. 
Um, Roger's super tough. Um, you know, Brian really made me work that night. You know, and the Russian, he made me tap. So, I mean, all those guys are, are tough, tough guys. Um, and then Will, and then Will Estes was, um, Will Estes was a, was an amazing fighter. I was just very, very prepared for that fight. Mm-hmm. Speaking of toughness, um, you have a, a school uh, in Goldsboro, and we'll talk about that in a second. But before you opened your new school, um, you were training folks out of your barn, and uh, you know, and and there's a lot of legendary training that has taken place there. A lot of really hard work got put in the barn. And I yeah. want to talk to you a little bit about that training, but first I'm going to ask you, who is the toughest person you think you've trained with in the barn? Oh, man. You see, when you throw, when you throw the in the barn, that, that changes things. Because um, I've gotten to train with some, some amazing people, some super tough people. You can give me both answers because I do want to hear both answers. Uh, tough, well, toughest person generally and toughest person in the barn. Well, tough is, I mean, it's, you know, it really like, um, there are so many people that are, are super good at, um, an individual thing. Um, when you spar kickboxing with Scott Francis or Robbie Adams, like it's, you know, it's just, those guys are phenomenal. Um, and I always try to do that. I, I didn't really want to train MMA with Scott Francis and Robbie Adams. I want to train kickboxing with them because they're kickboxers. Um, you know, I had the I had the, the unbelievable pleasure and honor of training with uh, the late Joe Lewis in Wilmington. He was the father of American kickboxing, and I was 18 and he was 60, and that old man was was still just just tough as nails. Hit just hit like a ton of bricks. But once again, I was I was only kickboxing with him. I would I would never ever you know um, even um, think to disrespect him by 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 doing anything other than kickboxing with him because I he's a legend in that and that's what he deserves credit for. Um, you know, obviously training jujitsu wise, um, you know, Hoist Hoist Gracie and, and Rodrigo Gracie are are amazing in entirely different ways. They're amazing. Um, Dave Camarillo is a freaking, um, I, I always compare rolling with Dave to being to like getting put in a blender. Like, you know, you just, you, put, you slap hands and they push the, the button on the blender and then you just lose track of which way's up and which way's down. And you know, it's just crazy. Um, but overall, the toughest person I've trained with that was able to, especially in the beginning when I trained with him, was able to dominate me in every position with Tim Kennedy. Um, because everybody else, you know, uh, I either didn't train full MMA with them or I would be able to out outperform them in some area. But when I met Tim and I started training with Tim, man, like that, he just, Tim just, just no one has ever beat me up the way Tim Kennedy beat me up. Um, but I never trained with any, all those people I just named, I never trained with any of them in the barn. So, um, and I'm sure that I'm leaving, you know, a ton of guys out. Um, you know, Brandon Garner is probably like, uh, Brandon's like my favorite person to spar with me and Brandon fought on the same show, like eight different times or something like that. And we trained together so much and Brandon is unbelievably good everywhere and I'm just lucky that I'm bigger than him um, because, man, he's he's awesome to train with. Um, but, you know, in the barn, the, the, the thing about the barn is was that um, um, mental toughness became the big thing in the barn. Um, the, the barn was its own, like, trump card. Anytime that anyone visited from anywhere else, and they come into the barn, especially during the summertime, and we're used to it, and they're not. It was, it was like, you know, it, it was, it was at least a belt level difference maker. I mean, like, you know, you'd walk into the barn, and you'd have a, a you know, a legit purple belt that was tapping the blue belts in the barn, just because they just weren't used to the, the heat and the intensity in there. 
and I know that if those guys rolled in the air conditioned, you know, academy somewhere else, that, that it would be entirely different. Um, I would probably say that, uh, especially jujitsu wise, the, the toughest person I trained with in the barn was Seth. You know, Seth's a really, really hard style matchup for me. And, um, and, and, you know, he's always a, you know, always a tough role. You know, he's, he's when he's, when he's healthy and he's actually able, we're able to, and I'm healthy, we're really able to roll. Seth's always a super tough role. Um, MMA wise, you know, we just never, I, I don't mean this in, in an arrogant way because certainly not everyone came to the barn, but, but in the barn, we just never had anybody come into the barn, uh, MMA wise that could handle the heat and the intensity and the borderline claustrophobia hmm. and, um, and, and really, really compete with, with me and my guys. Well, let me, let me take that back. They could really compete with me and the barn. Um, you know, there were, there were individuals that could come in that could compete with some of the guys, but, but I never had anybody come into the barn training MMA that, that could compete with me. Slightly different take on that question. Do you have memorable? Do you have a particularly memorable day or two of barn training, where maybe you were preparing for a fight, or maybe you were preparing for a, you know, a major competition, or you were preparing someone else that stand out to you as particularly rough days of training? Oh my God, man! Um, well, see, you have to you have to understand that in the the first summer in the barn, which was 2011, um, Stephen Thigpen who's my student, he had a fight. And then two weeks later, Aaron Kershaw, another one of my students fought. I, th- I think that's the correct order, but, but anyway, he fought like the second week in July. And then I had my fight with Will Estes the last weekend in July. So like every two weeks, someone was fighting. And so from, I mean, the entire summer of 2011, May, June, July, was just was just savage. I mean, because it was so hot, and we had three people training for fights, um, you know, and uh, and it was it was just super super intense. And uh, and I do remember there's there was one time there was a few days that it got too cold to train in the barn that we just canceled class because it was just it, it was just. You know, if it's if it's 15 degrees outside, then it's 30 degrees in the barn. You can't train. But we had one day that we um, that we had to actually stop training inside the barn. I had a little thermostat on the wall, and we did about 45 minutes of pads, and uh, and it was le- legitimately dangerous. We did we did 45 minutes hitting the t- hitting the tie pads, and uh, and guys were like seeing spots and barely able to stand up. And I looked over and the thermometer on the wall in the barn was at 107. And uh, so that was the one day in the barn that we ever stopped training because it was too hot. Didn't you have to take Aaron to the doctor after that session? Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember if he went to the doctor or not, but yeah, Aaron was, Aaron was bad off. Cause I want, uh, I, I, well, I hate to say, you know, I don't remember exactly the date, but, but I want to say that that was, the closest I want to say that was like after Steven's fight and getting ready for Aaron's fight. So Aaron was like the focus of training. Um, I, I think that's correct. But I, I mean, he was, he was bad off and, you know, and you, it's training hard is one thing, but you know, uh, heat stroke is, is, is a legitimate concern at that temperature. Mm-hmm. So you have a new school. So when did you open uh, your new school in Goldsboro? It's been about a year and a half ago now. It was it was um, October, October I think of 2014. What would you say the biggest difference? Because you had a school before, and and you had the barn before. What would you say the biggest difference between your current establishment and previous iterations of your schools has been? The the biggest difference now now first of all in terms of the 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 first school that I had in Goldsboro, um, we got some good training in there. Um, and, uh, and, and, and there were some good memories there as well. Um, but 
it was not run in a professional manner. Um, it was not, it was not an actual business. Now the jujitsu, the, the training was great, but it was not a professional business. Um, and then in the barn, the, the barn was, uh, because I had no overhead. The barn, once again, was not a business, but it didn't need to be a business. It was, a, it was the barn behind my house. I didn't have to pay rent. I didn't have to, you know. So the barn was 100% about training. And it was, if, you know, if you couldn't, if you couldn't make it, leave. You know, and, it, and so it had much more of like a, um, uh, only the strong survived type of, type of vibe to the barn. You know, and that was, and, and, you know, and then, and now is the first time that I feel like I'm a legitimate businessman. I, I always try to be very professional. I try to keep the place very clean. It's hard with three kids, but, you know, three kids that basically live there. Um, but I try to keep the place very clean. The classes are run in a very professional manner. It's very, I try to make it very welcoming to everyone. Um, and that's, and that's, you see as a reflection that, um, you know, I've got a, a, a pretty big kids class. I've got, you know, my fundamentals classes have, have people from, from 13, 14 year olds up to 50 something year olds, housewives, doctors, you know, and it's, and so the, the current uh, trying uh, the current the current school that I have is is much more a representation of the Alio Gracie philosophy of making this something that's accessible to the people that need it the most. What would you say your main goal as an instructor is? My main goal as an instructor is to correctly. Um, correctly represent Hoist Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. I would say that's my my number one goal as an instructor. Um, I, I I think that everyone is welcome to train in any way that they enjoy training, and each instructor is welcome to teach in whatever way they feel is the best way to teach. But as for me, I'm trying every day, every class to get as close as possible to, to what Hoyce believes in. And, you know, if, if Hoyce, I, I would, I would, I would like for Hoyce to be able to walk into my place at any time and see anything that's going on and approve of whatever it is he sees. And that's, that's my number one goal as an instructor. What would you say the core of Hoist, Hoist Gracie Jiu-Jitsu is? How would you describe Hoist Gracie Jiu-Jitsu? The, the, the hashtag that I'll use on, on, the in, on Instagram sometimes is, uh, I almost said the Instagram. I was almost that person. Um, the hashtag that I use on Instagram sometimes is complete Jiu-Jitsu. That, to me, is what separates uh, Hoist's jiu-jitsu from almost everyone else's. Not everyone, because there are some others, but but the, the idea of having the jiu-jitsu that prepares you for whatever eventuality you might encounter um, should you ever actually need your jiu-jitsu. Um, I think that there are um, there, there are a lot of schools that are dedicated to one specific aspect, and I think that's okay. Um, you know, so for instance, if, if, if as an instructor, if an instructor decides that the, what he wants the most for his school is that he wants to have a competition school, I think that's completely fine. If you want to have a competition school, fantastic then then go ahead and do that um if you want to have a school full of tough guys you know that that you know anybody that walks in the door you know they're you you guys are going to beat up anybody that walks in the door if that's what that instructor wants to do and that's what those students sign up for 
I think that's fine. Um, but with hoist, it's a complete jujitsu where we have the standing self-defense techniques. We have striking techniques. We have takedowns. We have ground techniques, gi, no gi, MMA, self-defense, grappling. Um, and it's all part of one curriculum. And then, of course, the, the philosophical aspects that tie all of those different, different things together. So many of the, of the self-defense schools uh, are not necessarily – some of them are, are opposed to competition entirely and others are more skeptical of the role of competition. What do you, what do you think of the role competition plays in, in the complete jujitsu that you describe? Okay, let me, let me see if I can answer this in, in an in accurate way. Let me see if I can come at this in the, in the correct way. The development of competition jiu-jitsu, the entire idea behind uh, grappling-style competitions is to test your self-defense abilities without getting beat up. So if you go back to uh, Jigoro Kano, who you know, obviously modified jiu-jitsu to meet his needs, the ways you win in judo represent life and death on the battlefield. If you throw someone for an ipon, where you land them directly on their back with force and control, if that person you throw landed on a hard surface, they would possibly be dead, certainly incapacitated. The the you know or or you know by winning by choke or winning by arm lock, the pinning the time for the pins in judo was based on the amount of time that you would need to hold someone down and draw your dagger and stab them in the neck. That's where the the sport of judo came from was a preservation of these battlefield tactics in a way that could be safely transmitted without people legitimately dying. And so jiu-jitsu, Grandmaster Elio competed in grappling competitions. The majority of his um, fights were, or not, maybe not the majority, but several of his fights that he's remembered for were against Japanese judo practitioners in grappling matches. And he did that in order to test his abilities. So the role of, of grappling competitions from, from my perspective is that it gives students a realistic way to test their ability to defend themselves. And if you have ever watched a novice division at a grappling tournament, it is a fight. If you go, you go to Naga, not U.S. Grappling, because U.S. Grappling is just amazing and everybody's so technical. But if you go to Naga and you watch the novice division at Naga, that is a street fight. Those dudes are out there, you know, just like as if, if they were at the bar and they ripped their shirt off and got down in their skimpies and started throwing down in the parking lot. It's exactly the same thing. They're just not hitting each other. And so, uh, of course, MMA is the most is unequivocally the most realistic street fight simulation without actually being in a street fight. But MMA is very um, exclusory. Not many people can or will ever participate in MMA. Whereas a grappling competition gives a much wider range of people the chance to test themselves in a high-pressure, high-stress environment against someone that they don't know that is legitimately giving them 100% resistance and doing everything they can to beat them. The problem comes when the training becomes more focused on actually winning the competition than it does on your self-defense ability. And that's why today, you know, there's in judo, there's very, very few places 
that practice the atemewaza, which were the striking techniques of judo. There's very, um, there are very few people that practice the Goshen Jitsu, which is the self-defense techniques of judo. Um, and that's the danger of competitions is that if you become too focused on winning the next tournament, you lose effectiveness in self-defense. Um, and now if you're not training for self-defense, that's okay. If your purpose for training is that you want to have a hobby and compete in a fun sport, there's absolutely no problem with that. The problem comes when someone teaches and trains only sport, but then advertises self-defense. So the the flip side of that is if uh, – so some of the purely sport jiu-jitsu folks – think all you need to do, uh, you know, the, the Mendez brothers, for example, you know, uh, who are, you know, among the best in the world today and Hoffa's maybe one of the best ever have, when asked about self-defense, say just learning sport jujitsu enables you to defend yourself. And, uh, I'm curious what you'd say about that. Well, you, 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 you answered your question with your preface, which is that Guy and Hoffa Mendez are some of the best competitors in the world and maybe some of the best ever. If Guy or Hoffa Mendez, um, you know, if, if somebody grabs them in, in, you know, in a parking lot somewhere, you know, they're, they're not even going to have, they're, you know, they're not going to barambolo. They're not going to do, they're not even going to get their skinny jeans dirty. They're going to dispatch the guy so quickly that it's, it's going to be absolutely ridiculous because those guys are just unbelievably amazing. Grandmaster Elio used to say that, that big people had natural jujitsu. They didn't need to learn jujitsu because they had natural jujitsu. They were born big. So they could probably use their size and their strength to defend themselves without knowing jujitsu. But if you take the, the average person, let's say an average adult male is 5'8 to 5'10", and weighs between 160 and 200 pounds, is not exceptionally athletic, and works a full-time job, and has two hours, two times a week to devote to training. That's, that's, that's an average person. That person does not have the time nor the genetics to ever remotely reach the level that the Mendez are on. No, never. It's, it's absolutely impossible. They literally, the Mendez brothers literally train more in a single day than the average jujitsu student trains in a week. And they have been doing that since they were 11 years old or, or however old it was when they started. So for the average person, I'm not saying that they can't enjoy some of the sport grappling aspects, but they would be better spent if they're training for self-defense. And that's, that's the big if, if they're training for self-defense, they would be better spent practicing specifically self-defense techniques than specifically sport techniques. What do you think the most common mistake that early jiu-jitsu students make in their training? Doing too much. The, 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 I hate to be you know, curmudgeonly here, but the internet you know, has just made being a white belt so terrible. Um, because when you, have, when you can go on YouTube and you can type in you know, whatever you want to type in, and you can get a hundred different videos of a hundred different instructors that are teaching you God knows what. That is the absolute worst thing for somebody who's a beginner in jiu-jitsu. Um, when you're a white belt in jiu-jitsu, your job is to show up to class, do whatever your instructor tells you, and that's it. And hopefully you've found an instructor that has a fundamentals class and covers actual fundamentals in the fundamentals class. 
Um, so that that's the biggest mistake that that I see beginners making is they're just trying to do too much all at once. The Barambola will still be there in three or four years when you have enough solid basics to actually understand the mechanics of the movement. I guess the follow-up question would be, when you become a mid-level jiu-jitsu student, when you have a blue belt maybe with a stripe or two on it, when you've achieved a certain level of proficiency, what do you think the biggest mistake that those mid-level students make is? That's a, that's a much trickier question. Um, I think that uh, the blue belt, in my opinion, is the most important uh, belt in jiu-jitsu. And there are some people that, that say, oh, the white belt's the most important belt. I, I don't believe that because anybody can put on a white belt. Anybody can show up for class, buy a gi, get a white belt, and put it on. I've had people that came to my school and paid me $100 for a gi and had a white belt and literally never came back for a single class. So to me, the blue belt is the most important belt in jiu-jitsu because the blue belt shows that you know the basics and it shows that you, you have a dedication to jiu-jitsu and you put in a measurable amount of time and work. But then what happens is when people get their blue belt, the blue belt becomes such an enormous goal. It becomes such a big um, brass ring to reach for that they expect the blue belt to have magical powers. But then what happens is you get your blue belt and you show up to class that Monday. You got your blue belt on Saturday and you show up to class on Monday and you got this new belt and you feel like the man. And the same people that always tapped you still tap you. That, that they've been blue belts for five years are not, you know, you're a blue belt, they're a blue belt, but it's not the same. And so that leads to two things. First of all, it leads to a general frustration. It, it just leads to feeling like, man, I did all this work and I got this belt and it doesn't even matter. No, it does matter. Getting a blue belt is an amazing achievement that, you know, the vast, vast, vast majority of people never, never receive. So, that's the first thing is blue belts get very frustrated. They, they, they feel like they're not improving, even though they are. And they, they, they just get frustrated. The second thing that happens with blue belts because of this is that the big mistake I see with blue belts is they end up with very bottled up jujitsu. They end up with, with one or two moves that they, they become very proficient and they really like those two moves but they never go out and try anything else. And, and there's nothing I hate, look, there's nothing I hate worse than hearing anyone below purple belt say, oh, that's not my game. Until you are a purple belt, you do not have a game. When you're a white belt or you're a blue belt, you might have moves that you prefer more than other moves, and that's natural and that's okay, but you don't have a game. Your job at Blue Belt is to try everything. Try every sweep that you learn. If you learn it in class, try it. If you learn a submission, try it. If you, your goal is just to experiment with as many different things as you can. Because when you get to Purple Belt is when you shape your game. And if you didn't spend enough time adequately exploring all the different possibilities at Blue Belt, then if you manage to make it to Purple Belt, you're not going to have enough options to choose from to make a complete game. So I think, I think that those are the two things. I think being frustrated and then ending up bottled up and not trying new things, those are the two biggest pitfalls that I see at the Blue Belt level. So your instructor, who has been your instructor uh, since you started jiu-jitsu, is Hoist Gracie, the, the legendary godfather of MMA. What is the most important advice Hoist ever gave you? That's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to think about one thing, but I think that just overall the, what, what he said to me that it probably was the most meaningful to me overall was when the situation happened where I had left Team Rock and started trying on jiu-jitsu, but we weren't actually part of the Hoist Network yet. 
um, you know, we talked, we, we were always, we were always having conversations. We never had any disconnect between me and Hoyce. And, uh, and he told me, he said, just be patient. And he said that if you're patient and if you're loyal, that everything will work itself out. And, uh, and it's not a, it's not a piece of technical advice. It's not, a um, you know, it's not, not some amazing mind blowing thing, but that's, that's definitely what it is up happening is that when, if you're, if you're patient and loyal, then everything else will take care of itself. Um, and if you, if you feel like you're in a situation where you can't, you feel like, you feel like being patient and loyal will be difficult for you, then maybe, um, maybe you're, you're not in a good situation. Maybe, maybe you've created a bad situation or maybe you're, you know, if you don't feel like, like being loyal to your instructor is the correct thing, then, uh, then maybe you didn't have a good instructor who knows, but, uh, but that advice of being patient and loyal, that's, that was really the thing that, that helped get me through that, that kind of, um, in between period there. In North Carolina jujitsu, who has helped you the most? Well, uh, my, my main original instructor was Spencer. I tore him up. And, uh, and so when I started training, um, Greg, Greg had just gotten a contract in New Mexico working with the air marshals, you know, shortly after September 11th. And so when I started training, Greg wasn't there a lot. The first, uh, probably four months that I trained, I only trained with Greg maybe like two or three times, but I trained with Spencer every day. Twice a day, every day, I trained with Spencer. I used to skip school and go train. And um, and, uh, and then my mom would call the school and say, hey, is Jake there? And Spencer's like, no, I don't know where he is, and I'm sitting next to him. Um, <laughs> but, um, but so, you know, all of my foundation in jiu-jitsu came from Spencer. And then as I started competing – uh, Jason Colbreth started having a, a much bigger impact on me. And, uh, because Jason was the one that was always at the tournaments, Greg and Spencer were the people that I had instructing me in class every day. Um, and so they were both, I mean, you can't, you know, Greg, Greg's an amazing instructor, amazing grappler, amazing, you know, just, he's fantastic. Spencer, you know, is amazing. But, uh, but Jason was the one that he was there at the tournaments with me that was able to give me that immediate feedback. And Jason and I have very similar styles of communication. So Jason was able to put things in terms that immediately made sense to me without um, sugarcoating, I'll say. Um, so I would, I, would, I would say that, that – uh, that Spencer and Jason were, were were probably my my biggest influences, my biggest um, the people that helped me the most um, in jujitsu. But I mean, then there's so many other people, so many peers that I had, um, and I look back at the 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 original Team Rock school that I came from, and the amount of black belts that came out of that tiny little hole in the wall in front of the Dixie truck stop. It's, it's just unbelievable. Um, you know, Brandon Garner, I already mentioned was, was, is my favorite training partner ever. And, uh, Roy Marsh, you know, he and I have known each other forever. Um, you know, and, and so there was a lot of great guys there. Um, if there's one thing that people in North Carolina jujitsu don't know about you that you would want them to know about you, uh, what would that thing be? I don't really know because I think I think that um, I think there's there's different people that know different sides of me in North Carolina jiu-jitsu. and uh, and so the impression you're going to get about me varies greatly depending on who you talk to. Um, so I guess what the what I would like everyone in North Carolina jiu-jitsu to remember 
is that I only have I only have two two things in my life that are meaningful. I have my kids and I have jujitsu, and that's it. And that's everything that I am is those two things. So whatever I do or whatever I say, it you know it may or may not be tactful. It may or may not be politically correct. Um, but I say it out of, I say it or I do it out of a love for jujitsu. And, uh, and so I know that some, sometimes that I've, I've maybe said or done some things that I shouldn't have done. And, and I feel like I've, I've gone to those individuals directly and, and, and cleared those things up. Um, you know, and then, and then there are some people that, you know, only know me for the, for the good side you know, for, for something good that I've done. And for those people, I'll apologize in advance for the fact that I'm human and I will almost inevitably do something that's going to make you mad at some point. And I, I promise that I don't mean it. <laughs> Is there anything that I haven't asked about that you wish I would have asked about? Well, I'm, I'm a Slytherin, you know, and I'm, uh, I enjoy walks on the beach and, um, uh, no, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I guess I only, I only have one other question, which is about your students. As an instructor, you don't want to pick favorites, but um, are there notable achievements from your students that you are especially proud of? I, I'm proud of, of all my students in different ways. My teaching style tends to weed out people that maybe uh, don't have good attitudes or don't... Um, don't for pe- for people that train for for less than altruistic reasons, uh, you know. Because I'm I'm a big purist on jujitsu, so you know I'm very proud of, of of all of my students for different reasons. Um, you know, one guy whose whose name I'm going to shout out, and, and just an example. He's not he's not special, and trust me, he knows that I don't think he's special. Is you know Brian Gorman, and Brian Gorman is currently a purple belt and trains in uh, you carry with Jason. He was mine first. And, uh, and so, like, you know, for Brian, I remember the first day that Brian Gorman came into the academy in Chapel Hill. And I remember he sat in the corner like, 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 a, like a, a little middle school girl and uh, had his knees up in his chest and, you know, just looked absolutely terrified. And I remember that I came over to him at one point and I said, you know, hey, man, do you, do you have any questions? And he looked at me and he said, well, I thought she said this was the beginner's class. And I said, yeah, man, this is the beginner's class. And he just looked at me and goes, oh, my God. You know, and that was that was that was 10 years ago. Um, but he's a purple belt and he's a and he's a badass and, you know, he's still training. And, you know, and so he's he's just one of many, you know, uh, my my right hand man in Goldsboro, Travis Wheeler, you know, He's a brown belt with a stripe now, and uh, and man, when he came to me ten years ago, he was a sissy, you know, just just flat out. That guy was just a punk, and um, and and now to see, you know, how tough he he's become, and you know, and he still has sissy tendencies sometimes, but he fights him real well, you know. And so to me, it's 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 not about like. Uh, individual that has won a tournament or won a fight, you know, because I, I have students that have done that as well. But it's it's seeing how jujitsu can give these people a confidence that they didn't have, and give them, you know, um, and help help them become stronger—not stronger physically, but stronger, you know, uh, stronger emotionally, stronger stronger people. <laughs> 